Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, at the outset, the opinions that are voiced on this show are not the opinions of Howard County Community College, its administrators, or employees. And any legal topic that we discuss is not intended to provide specific legal advice for a legal situation. If you have a legal problem, please contact a lawyer and get their professional advice. I'd like to welcome to the show probably our most frequent guest, who also is one of my former college roommates, my law partner and neighbor, Alan Steinhorn. Welcome back, Alan. I like being here, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you today. I wanted to talk about a few things that sort of crop up that I think have direct application to the students here at Howard Community College mm -hmm. and the public at large, and that is people don't seem to understand the process associated with a trial. Sometimes they don't make distinctions between criminal trials and civil trials. Very often they do not appreciate that there are trials that take place in front of juries and judges, how you arrive at the juries and that sort of thing. So today my notion was to talk from soup to nuts about trial work. And since you've been an expert in this field now for over 30 years, I thought you would be an appropriate guest to attack this. Well, that's an interesting topic. Um, we used to have gladiators. When disputes arose, um, the kings of each province would select their best gladiator and fight to the death. And the one who was standing at the end won the case, won the dispute. But over time, we've become more civilized, and we now resolve disputes in the courts. So one of the things that strikes me in my calls at my office is that there are people that call me about cases but don't fully understand the difference between a civil case and a criminal case. In a criminal case, the state is seeking to take your freedom from you. You could go to jail. You could pay fines. A civil case is where you're seeking money damages or an order from a court compelling someone to do something. So if you're a landlord or if you just have a house that you're renting with your friends and you all sign a lease and one of the people stops paying rent, you might go to court to get an eviction notice to get them evicted as well as for money damages. There are instances where we have both a criminal and a civil case. And last week I got a call from someone who told me that they had gone to court and that the judge had ordered the defendant to pay them the $500 for their car accident case, but that that wasn't enough. And I immediately knew that they must have been in criminal court. The person that hit them had left the scene, so it was a hit-and-run accident, and they had a license tag number. When you go to court for a hit-and-run accident, you could go to courts for civil or criminal. Origi uh, the first thing that will happen will be a criminal case where the person who hit and ran is charged with a ticket of hitting and running. So you might go to court, and you might be able to ask the judge to get restitution for your damage to your car. And what is restitution? I know we've covered it in previous cases. In well, fact, rest Restitution is simply compensation for a loss that you incurred. So if someone in a parking lot bumps into the rear of your car, the restitution, and they leave the scene, that would be a crime. You have to stay at the scene where there's property damage. You have to leave your name and your insurance company information. So a judge might say as restitution, you have to pay the damage. And what happened in this case is the person apparently told the state's attorney, and that's the person that prosecutes cases in criminal court, that they had a $500 deductible. So the person who was uh, damaged in the parking lot case, where the person left the scene, wanted their $500 deductible. But they also had two children in the car, and both child seats had to be replaced. Whenever you're in a car accident, and this is an important message for any young mothers or fathers out there, if you're in a car accident, you're supposed to replace the car seat. 
car seats are not guaranteed after you've been in an accident. So and what if it seems like your car seat's perfectly fine? You really shouldn't take the chance. If you've got an infant or a small child, you should replace that seat. If you're ever in a car accident and it's due to someone else's fault, the at-fault insurance company should replace your car seat. So this person didn't get compensation for their car seats and called me to complain about the prosecutor not listening to them. But in reality, what the person had was a civil claim against the at-fault driver. Additionally, those of you who have full coverage on your cars, this includes comprehensive or collision, if someone strikes you and you don't want to deal with their insurance company, you can always go to your own insurance company and tell them you want your insurance company to take care of all the damages. You would then have to pay a deductible to the body shop where the repairs are made, but if you're not at fault, your insurance company will collect your deductible from the at-fault party. If the at-fault party is found at fault. Ultimately. Correct. And what the insurance companies do is they'll take a recorded statement from you, that is your own company, and the other company will take a recorded statement from their driver, and they will pick an arbitrator, and the two insurance companies will arbitrate who pays for these claims. And the arbitrator will read the statements, they will look at the photographs, if there's a police report, they'll read the police report, and then conclude who is at fault. And the insurance companies are bound by that decision. Intercompany arbitration. That is the word. That's correct. Okay, so the person calls you and is complaining they didn't get their due in court, and they didn't really understand that they had more recourse in the context of bringing a, a civil, a non-criminal That's correct. action. Now, if it's only property damage and you don't have full coverage and the at-fault party's insurance company isn't paying you for whatever reason, um, and they often don't pay, which leads to you and me having jobs, if they did the right thing, perhaps we wouldn't have this job. But if they don't pay, then the person can go to small claims court. And you really don't need a lawyer for that, but many people don't feel comfortable in speaking in public. So, so just you to might. touch on that for a second, why is it you don't need a lawyer in small claims court? Well, if your claims are less than $5,000, although I believe they've recently raised it to ten, I've got okay. to double check. But if your claims are of a small amount, the idea is that Maryland has what's called a people's court, a court where you don't have to go pay a lawyer. Lawyers can be very expensive. And so people's court is the district court, correct? The district court, that's right. And in the district court, there is within the district court a small claims court. So it depends on how much money you're suing for. Okay. And again, I think it recently went up to 10000 I don't handle a lot of small claims cases, but I do some. So I should know that. But We will address that on a future show. But what would have. happen is you would simply go to court, fill out a form that has your name, your address, the defendant's name and address, and you would write, I was in a parking lot when the defendant backed out and struck my car as I went through uh, one of the aisles. And then you just simply tell a judge in a couple minutes what happened. You bring in a property damage estimate or two, if you'd like, show it to the judge, and then the other side has an opportunity to say why they're not at fault. That is something that can be done without an attorney, although I recognize that one of the greatest fears that people have is speaking in public. That is something that lawyers are trained to do, and through experience, we become very comfortable doing it. So just to be clear, when you're in small claims court, the evidentiary rules, the rules of getting things into evidence do not apply in the same way that they do in all other courts, correct? Yes, that's a very important point you're making, and it should put people at ease. One of the reasons that people don't need lawyers in people's court is that you don't have to know the rules of evidence, you don't have to know the rules of civil procedure, and the mandate, that is the order given to the judge hearing the case, is to, quote, do substantial justice. So if you have a case where someone has clearly been wronged, but the rules of evidence, if they were in 
say, the circuit court and had a $50,000 claim, if the rule of evidence required them to introduce the evidence with a certain custodian of records in a certain particular way, well, in small claims court, you don't have to follow that rule of evidence. You don't have to call in the custodian of records. You don't have to do the things that the rules of evidence require an attorney to do. So if a judge feels that justice requires that a document be viewed, it might be an inadmissible document in the circuit court, but a judge is supposed to do justice. So I've been in small claims court. I represented um, a business that um, probably did about 10,000 transactions a year. Wow. And if one-tenth of 1% went bad, I might have three or four cases a year that I had to go to court on. Now, the owners of this business were scrupulous about making sure people uh, were treated fairly. So the only times I went to small claims court were in cases where people were acting unreasonably and really had no legal right to the relief they sought. But... The people that went to the small claims court were allowed to tell their stories. And if you ever saw the TV show of Judge Judy, or there was a TV show called People's Court, that is really what it's like. People just telling their stories to a judge and getting the relief they seek, or a judge telling them, I'm sorry, but you're not legally entitled to that relief. So people should not be afraid of settling their disputes in small claims court. If you go to the clerk's office, the clerk will not give you legal advice, but they will give you the forms and tell you, you know, these are the forms to fill out, and they're not that hard to fill out. So one of the things that's sort of a commonality between uh, the people's court, the district court, the small claims court, criminal court, civil court, big cases, small cases, is there is a structure to a trial and that there are things that occur typically in all such cases. And basically the structure of a trial starts off with the people who are involved in, in the lawsuit uh, having an opportunity to present opening statements. Isn't that correct? Well, a trial, you should think of a trial as a story in which the lawyers are storytellers. And they're trying to obtain a finding from a fact finder. When you hear the word fact finder, that's either a judge or a jury. And our jobs as trial lawyers is to persuade a judge or jury, that is the fact finder, that our position is correct and that we should get relief under the law. So really what great lawyers do is they tell great stories. They tell great stories that are persuasive. And since I began practicing law 33 years ago, society has changed dramatically. Um, in front of me right now is my iPhone. Um, everyone has one of these. And it's a computer in your pocket. So at any time of the day, you can take this computer out of your pocket, look at a visual screen and see pictures or see text. So we have become a much more visual society. On the right over here, and I don't know why this thought came to me, but I was thinking of how things have changed over the last 30, 35 years since I started practice. <clears throat> and I thought of the fact that when I was a child, there were three television stations. Now that would sound ludicrous to a five or 10 year old today. But we had ABC, CBS, and NBC. And when I moved from Baltimore City to Washington, we had WTTG, Channel 5. Washington had four channels. But we weren't as visual a society. Nowadays, if you go out, you'll see people sitting around and they're looking at their phones. So when lawyers present cases, it's really important that they think about that and that they be visual. So when you present your case, you should use what's called demonstrative evidence, but what more meaningfully might be called pictures, slides, 
PowerPoints. Videos. So basically you tell your story and you use visual aids and you tell the story. Perhaps it's a, um, a medical malpractice case. You know, John Smith was 75 years old, had been married to the same woman for 50 years old when he started feeling a little sick and went to his doctor and this happened and that happened. So we want to tell a story in this particular case. And I recently saw a presentation by Paul Beckman, who's one of the finest attorneys in Maryland, if not the country, about a wrongful death case he tried. And the gentleman was 82 years old and died of a tumor that was on his um on his liver that was undiagnosed. And his doctor had suspected that he had a problem. And the doctor ordered a CT scan, which is a diagnostic scan like an x-ray. And Paul presented this at the American Inns of Court meeting that I attended last month. And I tip my hat to Paul. It was one of the best opening statements I'd ever heard. But at the end of that opening statement about a man who died from an undiagnosed cancer because the radiologist failed to see the clear nodule that all of us saw, um, Paul presented this case so persuasively by, that by the end of his opening statement, I felt like telling him, I don't need to hear from the defense lawyer. I don't need to hear any witnesses. I'm ready to award your client money. So basically, in cases, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case, the case starts out with a lawyer telling a story, an outline, a table of contents of what he expects the evidence to show. You might think of it as a movie trailer. And if the lawyer can persuade the jury in that opening statement that his cause is correct, it is hard for the jury throughout the trial to change their opinion. I interned for a circuit court judge who later was appointed to the appellate court of Maryland, Rosalind B. Bell. And Judge Bell told me that she believed that 80% of all cases were decided in the opening statement. And she based that opinion on her interviews with jurors. Every case that Judge Bell ever tried, she would meet with the jury after their verdict. I was not permitted to come in the room at the time. She didn't want to inhibit any jurors from speaking their minds. But she said that 80% of them had made the decision by the opening statement. So the way a trial works is there's an opening statement, whether it's a criminal trial or a civil trial. If it's a criminal trial, the prosecutor goes first. If it's a civil trial, the person suing, seeking money damages or an injunction, they go first because they have the burden of proving their case. So you first have an opening statement where each side gets an opportunity to say, this is what my case is about. Now, just for the benefit of our listeners, who goes first? Well, it's always going to be the person with the burden of proof. So in a criminal case, the prosecutor has the burden of proof. In Maryland, we call prosecutors state's attorneys. In the civil case, it would be a plaintiff. A plaintiff is the person that brings the lawsuit. I have a burden to prove my case by a preponderance of the evidence in the More civil case. More likely so than not so. All I have to do is prove that it probably happened. So as you listen to my case at the end of the case in my closing, I'm going to ask you, what probably happened? And I'm going to tell you what we proved. We proved that this probably happened. In a criminal case, you're going to take away someone's liberty if they're convicted. Someone might go to jail for the rest of their lives. So in a criminal case, we have a higher burden of proof called beyond a reasonable doubt. It doesn't mean beyond all doubt. It's beyond what reasonable doubt is. And it's kind of hard to get 12 people in a criminal case, there are 12 jurors, to all agree beyond a reasonable doubt that the state proved this person committed the crime. Unless they've got a heck of a case. They've got to have a good case. So let me just digress for one moment. You were mentioning Judge Bell and how she liked to interview the jurors afterwards. Did she find that there was any correlation between you know, 80% of the people decided the case during opening? Did they decide the case for the plaintiff or did they decide the case for the defendant, or did she kind of keep track of that information? 
she didn't keep track of whether it was a plaintiff or a defendant. She just indicated to me, and, and at the time she was trying to give me insight because I wanted to be a trial lawyer. She knew that a part of my um, education would be benefiting from what she had learned. Sure. And what she learned was that the jurors made their decisions, whether it was for the plaintiff or the defendant, or in a criminal case, whether it was for the state or for the defendant, that 80% of the time the decision was made after the openings. So her point to me was, give the best darn opening you possibly can. It may be the most important thing you're going to do in your case. So what lawyers do, what trial lawyers do, is we persuade people. We talk about things in a way that makes people believe that our point is correct. Politicians also try and do this, and it's called framing. And a great example of framing is what Republicans have done with language, and they were the first party really to recognize this. So, for instance, the estate tax is a tax that is placed on estates. I think it's currently over $11 million. But the Republicans started calling it the death tax. So when you hear about the death tax, that sounds horrible. When you hear about the estate tax, you don't have the same feeling about it. They did the same thing very effectively, and I think Frank Luntz was one of the people originally that started talking about the use of words. So when I was um, in my teens, uh, people were called anti-abortion, people yeah. that felt that abortion was um, morally and legally wrong. But then they started um, saying, well, anti-abortion isn't really going to help us. What about pro-life? Who's not pro-life? Everyone's pro-life. So the mere usage of the term affects your perception of the incident. So or, do you perceive these framing exercises go on during trials? I guarantee you they're going on in trials. And the best lawyers can frame their topics in the best way. Um, when Mr. Beckman gave his opening to the Ends of Court Foundation meeting last month, he had an 85-year-old man who was diagnosed with cancer and had six months left to live because of the misdiagnosis. And many lawyers told him he was crazy to take that case because the man was 85 years old. He didn't have many years left to live. Paul, during his opening, kept referring to this vital 85-year-old man who loved life and each day would go take his wife to the grocery store and they would go to the movies. And he talked about the vitality of this 85-year-old man. By the end of his opening statement, I was expecting this man to play, you know, six or eight rounds of golf and two rounds of tennis. I don't know if you play rounds of tennis, two matches of tennis. But he just gave the impression that this guy was like, you know, 24 years old, and it was all in his choice of words. So we are wordsmiths, and if we can persuade you by choosing the correct words to make our arguments more persuasive, that's what we're supposed to do. Do, do you feel, I mean, whoever has a burden of proof goes first in opening statements. Is that an advantage? It can be an advantage because you can preempt your opponent's defenses. Okay. What do you mean by that? What I mean is if you've got a case where you know that the defense is going to claim, well, your client was speeding when this accident happened, and that's why the accident happened, not because we turned left in front of you from the opposite directions because you were speeding. Well, you can preempt that argument in your opening by saying, and we will prove that my client, John Smith, was traveling at the appropriate speed, and we'll bring in witnesses that will tell you, blah, 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 blah. So before the defendant has ever presented his defense that he's speeding, you've told this jury there's no evidence of it. 
Now that, again, using a car accident case is just a very simplistic way to explain it. But the idea is to figure out the weaknesses in your case and before the defendant has ever spoken to the jury, tell them the reasons why those weaknesses don't exist. And in fact, there is a very famous uh, trial consultant named Rodney Jew. And Rodney has this theory called the purple box. And what you do is you take your case and you destroy it. You, the plaintiff's lawyer, destroy your own case and take all the things that would be harmful to your case and put them in a purple box and then figure out a way, both in your opening statement and throughout trial, how to undo the bad things in your case. And only by knowing how to defeat your case can you win it. Makes a lot of sense. You deconstruct your case, you see what the problems are, you isolate them, and you attack them. Yes, and I believe that would cost you about $20,000 to spend a week with Mr. Jew as he attacks your case. But if you've got a huge case, you want a man like Mr. Jew on your side. Fair enough. So at all levels of court, criminal, civil, opening statements are given, then what happens next? Well, then the evidence comes in. The defendant has an opportunity to give his opening statement to say why the plaintiff's case is not what he says it is. Or to say he didn't commit the crime. Correct. In a criminal case, it might be to say, I didn't do it. They've got the wrong person. Um, In a criminal case, really the defense lawyer is holding the prosecutor, or I should say the state's attorney, to his burden of proof. And one of the interesting things about criminal cases is there will be people that will ask me, how can you defend someone like that? And I predominantly do civil cases, but I do some criminal work. And my answer has always been, my client is entitled to protections under the Constitution of the United States and under the state of Maryland. I demand that the state's attorney prove their case following the rules. And if they prove their case following the rules, my client will probably be convicted. But it is my job to enforce the rules, not necessarily the innocence of my client. So you move into the cases in chief. And again, the party that has the burden of proof, state in criminal prosecutions, and the plaintiff or injured party in civil matters Mm -hmm. puts on their evidence first, correct? They do it through witnesses. They do it through exhibits. They might do it through photographs. And then after their witnesses are called, the defense has an opportunity to cross-examine them. And I must say that's one of the best things about the American judicial system. Um, This coexists with politics right now. Right now there's a huge controversy about a memo that Representative Devin Nunes wants to make public that apparently contains classified information. The Democrats on the committee have said that, well, we need to present our side because you're presenting a one-sided story. You're cherry-picking facts. Right. So the reason the cross-examination is so important in our judicial system is that I could tell a story, and if it's unchallenged, you're going to believe. I could make you believe that snow is blue. But perhaps if someone took a photograph and showed it to the jury, they might say, wait a minute, it's not blue, it's white. So we need cross-examination to expose the truth. And with the memos that are going on, uh, Mr. Nunes doesn't want the Democrats to be permitted to release their memo interpreting the same evidence as he. But the whole thing about a trial is a search for the truth. And the only way that you're going to find the truth is if both sides challenge each other. Okay. So the party with the burden of proof puts on their case, Mm -hmm. and then I presume the other side does as well. At the end of the plaintiff's case, the defendant begins, and he can present his own evidence. He can present his own witnesses, his own exhibits. Um, The defendant, in essence, um, then takes over and tries to, I'd say, 
distract perhaps the jury from the evidence that the plaintiff presented and try and get the jury to focus on the evidence the defendant has. Contradictory evidence that's somehow helpful. Now, in a criminal case, oftentimes the defendant does not put on any evidence. The criminal trial... um, Why why is that? I I hear that, but why is that? Well, oftentimes the person is guilty and really doesn't have evidence to prove their innocence. So the trial goes forward with the defense lawyer cross-examining the plaintiff's witnesses and trying to make it sound like they don't know what they're talking about. So they're trying to sow reasonable doubt in the jury's mind as to important elements of the state's case. Correct. So the best defense lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, are often great at cross-examining witnesses so that by the end of their testimony, the jury is wondering, wait a minute, what did that person say? That cross-examination's got me thinking of something else. Okay. So what happens if the state or the plaintiff fails to prove all of the elements of their case during the time they're putting on their evidence? At the end of the case, the judge will give each attorney an opportunity to do a closing argument. And you'll notice I use the word argument. In Maryland, the close is an argument. You're allowed to argue. In Maryland, the opening is supposed to be a statement of the evidence. So you're really not supposed to argue conclusions that you draw from the evidence. But a clever, smart lawyer will figure out a way to persuade a jury in his opening. But after the closing arguments are completed, the jury goes back into the jury room. Or if it's a judge trial, the judge goes back in his chambers. Judges don't have offices. They have chambers. So they then go through the evidence. And if it's a jury, they talk amongst themselves and try and determine whether they can reach agreement. If they can't reach agreement in a criminal case, if there are 11 jurors that say he's guilty as sin, but there's one that says, no, I don't think so. I think he's innocent. Then the defendant cannot be convicted. In a civil jury, there are six jurors instead of 12 in the state of Maryland. All must unanimously agree on the outcome. And if it's a case asking for money damages, they have to agree on the amount. If they can't agree on the amount, they'll come back to the judge and say, either we can't agree on the amount or we can't agree on liability. The judge will send them back and tell them, we don't want another six people taking two or three days off to hear the same evidence. They're going to be in the same position you will. You need to make a decision. And then the jury will hopefully come to a decision. The answer to your question, though, the short answer is, if they can't come to a unanimous decision, a mistrial is declared. And... um, the parties decide whether they want to go through the second trial. If both sides decide, you know what, I don't think I can win this trial, they don't go forward. But if one side says, I want to go forward, there can be another trial. So this more or less applies to all levels of trial and every species of trial. There's an opening statement, there's evidence that's presented, there's closing arguments, and a decision is made. And there is an umpire. And he, and he is an umpire. He wears a black robe. He's not supposed to do anything but call balls and strikes. But as you know, Bob, they often like to do more than that. I've had judges that ask questions of the witnesses. There's nothing prohibiting them from doing it. But when they ask questions that show they didn't hear the witness's answer, it's a little bit troubling. I have to say it is a habit in judges. No offense to the judge, various judges who are my friends that drive me crazy because I do feel like I strategically plan what to ask. And if my opponent doesn't get around to asking the questions that would be helpful for them, I'm not crazy about judges. Well, perhaps we should close with one of the greatest questions ever asked in a trial that I'm aware of, and that's your friend Jerry Buting, the attorney in making of a murderer whose TV show will be airing next year on ABC. I don't know how many of your Probably listeners... Probably more like two years, but go ahead. I don't know how many of your listeners uh, listen to Making of a Murderer. 
But uh, Jerry Buting was trying a criminal case in Wisconsin, as I, I believe. That's it. And the judge was permitting the jurors to ask questions. And it was a murder trial. And Jerry is a prominent criminal attorney. This is one of my favorite trial stories, even if it's not my own. But Jerry was trying a case where I believe a um, a a gentleman was on trial for murdering um, the husband of a woman. That's correct. And as the evidence was presented, Jerry did a brilliant job of raising reasonable doubt. And at one point, a juror passed a note to the judge asking if they could ask a question. And the question boggles the mind. The lead detective investigating the homicide, Jerry Buting brought out the fact that he was having an affair with the deceased man's wife. And the question read aloud by the judge in the middle of the trial while the detective testified that the defendant was the murderer was this. Detective, where were you on the night of the murder? That was an acquittal. And that's one of the most amazing questions I've ever heard asked by a jury in a courtroom. You know, everybody dreams of being able to get that out. There's very few judges who let jurors ask questions. No, it's been very interesting to see that happen. Well, on that final note, with hope for all the trial lawyers who are listening and for all the student would-be trial lawyers, this is Everyday Law with your host, Bob Clark. Thank you, Alan Steinhorn. We'll see you next time.